What's up, Catching Up With Cub listeners? We are on a mission to make this podcast Australia's number one entrepreneurial podcast. And if you enjoy listening, you can help us do so by rating us five stars and leaving us a review. Your reviews will help other listeners find our show and it lets me know what you want to hear more of. I'm so incredibly grateful for your support. Now let's get to the show. Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with longtime Cub member, Matthew Holloway. Matt is the CEO of the Holloway Group, which is an end-to-end product manufacturing and commercialization business with a global distribution network in places like the Middle East, China, South Africa, and many, many more. Matt has a passion for innovating the way industries do things uh, through the creation of innovative products. Now, Matt's 36, he's built an incredibly successful and very unique business, but his business has so many universal challenges and and experiences that he's been through. And we discuss many things that are relevant to any business, such as uh, innovation and how to use it to nullify your competition and prevent price competition, how to build a world-class team and how having great A players can impact your business and how he has and still is scaling his business and the different methods he's done to do that. Matt's an incredible guy. Enjoy the show. Well, we need to start this episode by saying congratulations because I hear that you've got a very new son. Indeed. 12 weeks old. 12 weeks. Yeah, and currently sleep deprived. <laughs> <laughs> 12 weeks is that good stage though. It's like they're, they're kind of fatter by that point and you're not as fearful of like um, – I, I never touch babies until they're about six months, but that's because they're not mine. I'll probably touch my kid at about 12 weeks. This is when they're a bit more sturdy, you know. You're not scared of breaking them or anything like that. Yeah, mate, he's, he's awesome. Um, you know, so much build up through the pregnancies, our first one. Uh, it's full on. You know, now he's 12 weeks. The first four to six weeks he's he was just a little potato. Yeah. He, he doesn't do much now. He's, yeah, up and bouncing around, smiling, following us everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, mate. How, it how really do you, is. How do you think it's – do you think it's impacted – I mean, obviously it's impacted your life, but we're on a business podcast. We'll, maybe we'll, we'll try to focus that. How has it impacted, I guess, your work life or, or your or your maybe – philosophy or reasons towards working hard in business? It's interesting. Certainly I've been trying to find more balance and that's right through the back end of Ali's pregnancy. So, you know, it probably puts things in a little bit more perspective, I guess. Certainly at the moment now uh, he's actually out with Ali's parents in Wagga. So I'm kind of flying in, flying out a lot over the weekends, which has been great for her. Ali's been amazing in, you know, in the journey. Um, she was very career focused. My wife's actually a statistician. So she was very, very, um, you know, pro-career. Uh, you know, we got pregnant uh, and then, you know, she's just turned it on as a mom. She's been amazing. So taking a lot of the heat off me, which is good, continue to <laughs> still- That always helps. <laughs> yeah, continue to, you know, do my thing. And, and I think certainly though it's- yeah, it's it's. I enjoy it. I enjoy going home and spending time with with him and her together. So yeah, definitely prioritisations changed. That's how, for sure. How beautiful. And, and Ali, your wife, she's from Wagga. Is she? She's from Wagga originally. Yeah. So we met when we were nineteen in Bondi. Or sorry, she moved to Bondi when she was nineteen, and then um, yeah, she didn't go back to Wagga basically since. And, Again, and we met. <laughs> we met in yeah when we lived in Bondi, and then um, 
yeah, the rest was history. You know what I love about Bondi? It's anyone that moves to Sydney from anywhere, whether it be Adelaide, Wagga, like Laura, Germany, they all go to the same place. It's a huge country and they all go to the one beach. Yep. You know, the most expensive strip of land, basically, in Australia, that's where they want to live. You know well, I mean? mate, I did. I grew up out in Western Sydney and, um, you know, out of home. I lived locally, you know, Western Sydney and Campbelltown for a while and then, uh, mate, I scooted into the eastern suburbs for, I don't know, I really didn't know what I wanted to do business-wise. I was, yeah, there was a few years in there that just trying to find myself, I guess, and, you know, it was, it was How good. How old were you? I think I was about 24. Okay. Yeah, 24 and um, – it was good fun. And so you're from Campbelltown, are you? Correct, yeah. And is that how you know Andrew Herman? It is actually, yeah, Andrew Herman. Yeah, yeah. we go quite a way back actually. Really? Yeah, I've always a, wanted to have a real estate guys. agent. When you met him? Yeah. yeah. To, yeah. to the listeners, Andy is actually another member. He's also got a podcast episode so you can search Andrew Herman and he's got a great mm. episode. But um, So you knew him before, way before. Yeah, I did. Then. Actually like kind of family friends effectively and then, um, yeah, and then sort of been mates with Andy 10 plus years and seen him and his rise and what he's doing in his space. He's, he's, he's going really well. Yeah, he's doing exceptional. Mm. And so you moved uh, to Bondi at 24. Mm. You mentioned you, you're kind of finding yourself. But uh, your family, so the, the business you're in, it was started by your father or grandfather? Yeah, so my late father. Mm -hmm. he, um, so dad was a toolmaker by trade. He started the business in the 70s. And then so for, for your listeners, toolmaking is effectively – um, a trade that manufactures moulds to go into injection moulding machines, blow moulding machines. It's, it's, it's quite a um, a complex trade. So he was a, he was a, he was a tool maker by trade and then he sort of thought, well, I can go and probably make a little bit more money in actually buying an injection moulding machine for the moulds that I'm making. So I guess long story short with kind of what Dad did through the 70s, he bought an injection moulding machine at the back of his father's tool-making facility um, and and started moulding. I think his first contract was thong straps, which was, you know, what he could get his hands on there and just built the business right up through the 80s and 90s as a contract moulding uh, business. So injection moulding is the specific process and then um, he moulded all sorts of stuff from Seiko watch boxes to bits and pieces for Coca-Cola. It was quite... Yeah, he was a bit of a titan in the industry back through the 90s. Wow. Yeah. And so when it's like injection molding, mm. are there different materials or is it or is it always like a similar material? For example, if I was or if he was a um a tool maker, mm -hmm. so you, I assume he'd make the molding for like a hammer or a type of hammer and then that would be poured in by steel or whatever it would or, or yeah so are there different materials is it mostly plastic is it yeah I so guess, think about steel? tooling is the mold development and then the process is injection molding so injection molding um is quite a niche process it um ranges in complexity and you can process a bunch of different materials that are that are specific for applications so i guess if you know going back to the story of the origins of of, of my business um so dad would then built the business up as a, as a contract moulding arrangement. He never had any of his own product lines and he actually sold that business to the Otto conglomerate, making the Otto bins back in, that was 94. And then again, Solo, the Solo business that are based up in Summersby that make all your roadside garbage bins now for market leaders in that space. They bought out Otto worldwide. And then out at the same site in Minto where I'm at at the moment, uh, they effectively 
sold the business back to dad in 2001 and that's when A Plus Plastics was incorporated. And so um, I guess if you fast forward from 2001, dad really never had an active role in the management of the business. He always had other, you know, managers in and um, there was a, a CEO at the time. And then look, through that period, if we're just doubling back on kind of what I was doing through that process, I graduated out, out of St. Greg's in Campbelltown 2003. Um, really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I mean, it was work hard, try to get a decent UAI. And then you're presented with like a uni textbook. And I'm going through this textbook thinking, what the hell do I want to do? I haven't got a clue. Like really, I had no driving passion in any particular thing other than playing sport and, you know, and, and you know, socialising at that age and whatever you're doing. And so then I, I picked civil engineering. I got the mark to get into civil engineering. Absolutely no idea why I picked it, but fucking hated it. I got into Wollongong Uni for 12 months. Um, I think it was about 2000 and it would have been 2004 and made a bail. I didn't do physics or chem at school. So I was doing bridging classes and just, it was a nightmare. So bailed on that. And then went to on, Bondi. <laughs> yeah, actually it yeah. was, it was about the, threw the toys out of the cot and then, yeah, uh, made a bit of a move into the East. And um, I guess through that period, I uh, um, kind of had a bit of a gap year and um, ended up on the factory floor. So the injection molding facility was up and running. It was obviously a, very small at that time. We're doing a lot of contract molding work. I I dissected for a couple of years, so that's changing the molds in and out of the machine. And congruent to that, I went to TAFE and did a um, polymer processing trade, effectively. What, is um, it, what does that mean? Oh, it's just polymer in, injection molding specific. So understanding what polymers do, um, the design of tooling, a bunch of different processes. Okay. In quite can can you just also explain to me more about like what injection molding is. So yeah. give me an example of things that are made that yeah. way. Yeah, so I can share a couple of the contracts I think yeah. the best is what we, we still do. So um, I'm a city slicker. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> injection molding. Yeah, so <laughs> the best way to think about it is high volume rigid plastic manufacturing, but it's got volume associated with it. So the injection molding process is very expensive to get into. The tooling is high cost, but it's a very economical process once you get going. So think about injection molding as manufacturing of all your McDonald's trays, manufacturing of your uh, grass catchers for your Victor lawnmower. They all profile as an injection molded component. So high volume, rigid plastics, you can put colour in it, you can make it from different polymers. Um, and so it's always plastics and that's I guess why it's called, a, that's why the business, that business particular, that, that, that particular then. business is called A plus plastics. Correct, contract moulding. Contract moulding profile, very risky through the early 2000s. China was a big impact and Southeast Asia on the competitiveness and the contract moulding dynamic was such that, you know, Dan, if I was to mould that cup for you, um, you know, I probably don't own that mould. You would. You'd engage my service to mould that. But, mate, if I've got to put my price up or you find that cup for an extra or, or five cents less down in another moulder shop, you can effectively just take that and, and relocate it. So, you know, back then there was high risk, no long-term security with contracts. It was, yeah, it was a pretty tough gig. Well, I want to get, I want to get to that point a bit uh, later on in the conversation, uh, the point of exactly how did you make, how, how do you make your business a sustainable, a strategic, sustainable long-term business when it could be price competing with with China and, and other likes? But I actually want to get back to, to, to your story. So you, you went to uni, didn't work out for you. You went to Bondi. And how did you meet your your now wife, Ali? 
Uh, I was an Australia Day party at Dover Heights. <laughs> <laughs> I was the designated driver with a couple of buddies and she was the same. And, uh, yeah, we just hit it off at a, at a party. Yeah. I just got about a long-term relationship. We dated for a while. Um, kind of didn't stay together straight away. We had a bit of a gap year ourselves and then um, kind of rekindled the fire 12 months later and haven't turned back since. How good. Yeah. How good. Yeah, yeah. And do you, find, do you find the partnership, having a partner um, – who's also dedicated to their career uh, and motivated like you are, do you find that that helps with your own personal motivations and ambitions? Or, Definitely. Or how would you describe that dynamic? Yeah. Oh, she'd be my biggest supporter by far. Um, someone to talk to that's, you know, really switched on of an afternoon about, you know, me trying to troubleshoot some problems. She's very, very good with people. So, and I'm not that great and I'm, I'm learning quickly because of some of the advice that Ali gives me around just the management and understanding the psychology. Her undergrad was in psych. So understand the psychology about what makes people tick. Um, yeah, I mean, I could be on that topic for a while, but certainly a big support in, in you know, what I do and, and what I've achieved over the last 15 years for sure. And what made you kind of finally decide, okay, I'm going to get into the family business. Mm. Obviously you started on the factory floor, you started mm. at the bottom, but what was that trigger where you're like, I can't find anything I want to do and that's that's something that I can, you know, carry on yeah. for another generation or what was the thinking? I think um, I didn't necessarily enjoy my time on the floor but I, it, it gave me a sense of achievement. I loved getting my hands dirty. I'd walk home, I'd drive home from, from work every day, grease-filled hands and – it was, it was good. Uh, I think in answer to your question, opportunity. So there was a massive opportunity there. So I, I did some time on the factory floor. Then I jumped into a, a sales role in the kind of the business development side of the contract moulding arrangements. And then made in 2007, um, you know, the CEO at the time, um, he actually fell unwell and I kind of just jumped in the chair in 2007. And, and at that point, the business was – we were struggling in, in all areas of the P&L, revenue, margin. It, it was really tough and there was a really impactful kind of directional change I think when I jumped in that seat as, as, as owner effectively and CEO was that we didn't have any of our own proprietary products. So I go back to the risk profile of the contract moulding arrangement. Uh, we, we didn't do – we didn't have any of our own product lines. So um, – I mean, we'll get into the detail about where the business is at now, but really from kind of 07 to now, um, we've had a huge focus on the development of our own IP, our own our own innovation and our own technology. So, um, Okay. So you – how old were you? So it was owned by the family. A CEO mm. left. You had been in yep. a, a, all sections of the business and so obviously the natural progression for yourself was to, to take the reins. Mm. Um, you've come into you've you've taken the range, you moved into CEO, and you realise, oh no, we're we're actually in a bit of trouble. We, we're not, um, I guess you call it safe, or however you describe it. How did you analyse that situation, and how did you come to the conclusion that we need to create create our own products and 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 IP? It probably didn't come to me straight away, but I was sick of losing contracts. We were servicing people really well. We were investing as best we could in technology to allow us to compete with, you know, overseas suppliers. Price-wise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like it was difficult. Contracts were leaving us. By the time we tried to retain contracts, there was no margin left in it. So we're dropping our pants to retain business but not making any money out of it. So it was the lack of control, I guess, through those contractual agreements and relationships that that – 
really agitated me. Um, and so then we, we set out uh, and, you know, my team set out on a mission, you know, to, to develop our own offer. So now across our business units and our brands, the process of injection moulding is somewhat diluted into actually what those products are doing. So, you know, um, I've got a bunch of business subsidiaries under the Holloway Group that, you know, the consumers or users of those products and services somewhat don't particularly care that it's injection moulded or don't know how it's made. And so the business has certainly morphed from a, a contractual you know, revolving around injection moulding. Now it's all about our products and our you know, innovations in those business units. Okay, so you kind mm. of said instead – so I keep losing clients because mm. um, China or other companies are just dropping the price and therefore just to keep them, I'm dropping the price, I'm not making any money. Mm. I obviously need to make a change. Yeah. And so you decided that the change you could make that would be successful would be rather than – uh, making other people's products and molds to cr designing, I, I assume you patent them or whatever mm. that would be called, mm. uh, and create your own products that you yeah, then that you then sell to uh, absolutely uh, different, yes. and that's and that's what you did. And so yeah. now you got the Holloway Group, yep, uh, with uh, subsidiary companies that are all product based, correct, uh, specialist product based, correct. Yeah, so so the business rebranded a few years ago now into Holloway Group because it was really difficult to do what we're doing now. With that, uh, I guess the um, not so much the value prop, but certainly how our business was perceived. It was being pigeonholed as just a plastic, rigid manufacturer, and it's you know we were so much more than that. So we decided to rebrand a Holloway Group. We've got um, you know six or seven subsidiary businesses under that now, all specialising in their own um, markets, and it's a very very diverse offer. Which which you. I guess create it. You, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, definitely. You, you, yeah. you've put together, yeah, and you're, yeah. you're only thirty-seven. Uh, yeah, thirty-six. Yeah, thirty-six. 37 and and I mean, your old man must have been pretty proud of the way that you. I think he was. I the, think the way that you. Um, yeah, yeah, you, definitely. You, you steered the business. Yeah, yeah, he was. I think um, somewhat got out of his depth over the last decade, and mm -hmm. you know he he would have admitted that, but certainly proud. Yeah, I mean. Um, you know, my grandfather was a toolmaker, dad was a toolmaker, I wasn't, but certainly taking the business in a very different direction. Um, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been fun, challenging, but certainly yeah, it's been a ride. It's really quite a universal business question that you answered though, which is how do I make my product or service irreplaceable mm. or com competition proof or, mm. or whatever the smarter way to say that would be? You know, and that's what you did. You, you okay... I'm at the mercy of price because if I sell a cup and someone else sells a cup and someone sells a cup for a dollar less than my cup, well, obviously the consumer doesn't care about me and my brand. They're going to go buy buy the cheaper cup. Yeah. You, which a lot of businesses fall in. You could be a, I don't know, you could be a <laughs> cup maker, it's just a <laughs> digital a commodity sale, company, a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's if you if two people are producing the same service That's or product, it. whoever does it cheaper. Yeah, is going to be, uh, there could be argument oh, but we do it the best, and, yeah, yeah. and that's why we charge more and blah blah blah. But I call them me too products. And yeah, those me too. Me products. too products are fine to have as part of a as an offer, but certainly we have a, an innovation culture in our organisation now. From myself right down to our some of our floor stuff, we're really trying to engage our team to think innovative products. Like how can you know, innovation can be applied. Um, not so much into into just you know product lines. It can be applied into service, and um, you can innovate how you talk to your clients yeah. right through to what we do, which is finding impactful market disrupting products. Now that just by default are injection molded because you know we have that unique position in the, the supply chain that we can not only sell 
impactful, sustainable products to our end users, but we've got the luxury of being able to make them ourselves. So we, I guess, make a clip on both sides of the transaction there, which is good. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're in the product-based business, but mm. even in like service-based businesses, like I was talking to someone from Cub the other day, I actually can't remember who it was, but they were telling me that they do, uh, it was a marketing business or something of the sort, some sort of service-based business, but they said, we specialize for doctors. We just do it for doctors. Mm. You know, I thought that's really clever because yep. how many marketing businesses or did you, I actually can't remember if it was marketing, but you get my point. It was yeah, yeah. it was something that was quite common. And they said, oh, we're doing it for doctors. Mm. And I thought that's really clever because, yep. you know, if I'm a doctor, uh, yes, there are lots of marketing agencies out there, but I'm probably going to choose the one that specializes in my thing. And so service-based businesses do it all, all like Cub. Like even Cub, if yep. you wanted to uh, grow your business owner's network and and meet other business owners. Yeah, there are other ways to do it, but none are able to or do it the way Cub does it. You know, it doesn't mean Cub's better or worse, whatever, it's better suited to the people mm. that like that style. Mm. But it's it's not, there's no direct comparison. You know, someone it. hasn't got the exact same thing. Yep. And for them to repl- and for them to copy us will take a tremendous amount of years of, of, of um, figuring shit out. Yep. It's a lot of money because they are set up the that we have is incredibly expensive. And so there's a high cost barrier to entrance. So it's not replicable. And with your business, now you're quite similar. Like you've got your patented products that you've created, designed and innovated. You're not just producing them, but you're also uh, uh, selling them or or on on selling them. It just stops like bastardizing products, doesn't it? Or service. So, Mm. you know, intellectual property in my space when you're selling tangible products is so critical you know you you've got the ability to build a sales team around that obviously so contract molding you can't i mean we still do you know 30 percent of my revenue is still contract molding it's still a very big part of my business but lower margin higher volume um so certainly with innovation patents design protection on on certain uh products that we've developed it enables you to build your own sales team and when there's ip and value there to the consumer that is making their life easier you, you can kind of set your own price right and and margin all of a sudden what do they say? Like um, revenues for show, profits for dough. So every single decision. I completely agree with that. I've yeah. never heard that. But like there's a lot that. of, you know, and not judging other people and how they want to run their business. I mean, for me, the top line isn't critical. It is in some cases, depending on how business units profile. But certainly what's revolutionized my business in the last decade, specifically the last five years, is margin. Like, And the way you were able to create that margin was in one aspect was creating a unique product that, people aren't able to replicate. And the second one was the strategic position of not just um, uh, making the product but also selling the product, being the the, the seller. So giving you a higher margin. And so what was that thinking behind that process? I read in your prep sheet that um, uh, focusing on the margin – yeah. And not the revenue, focusing on the yeah. profit and, and your margins of your of your products was uh, was kind of – from what I took from it was mm. one of the biggest eye-openers that you've had. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I guess what was the realising moment and how did you go about thinking, okay, how do I lift my margins? Yeah, well, I think effectively early on in the piece I was flying blind. Like I was hungry for work. I'd do whatever I could to get that 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 contract or that product through the door but then if you really had asked me what type of margin I would make on that transaction, I'd give you a ballpark answer. And, mate, you can't improve what you can't measure, whether it's our service value proposition, which is 
product commercialization end-to-end from design, prototyping, tooling to mass production or it's us selling a bit of, uh, you know, Geohex, one of our other proprietary products. I know exactly what we're making on that transaction and the sales team too, sales team does too. So, you know, my sales team's remunerated not only on revenue but margin as well, which is critical. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. That's yeah. really interesting. How did that come about? What was oh, the well, thinking behind it? I guess, you know, it, it gets the sales team concentrating on – putting more focus on higher revenue, sorry, higher margin parts. Mm. Yeah, like you want to sell a lot more of something that's, I've got a big suite of products now, you know, plus 300 units in my business. And so getting the sales team across on, well, what is going to return a better profit for the organisation, the business unit that you're managing, there's a bunch of products in that offer will concentrate on the higher return products. And I guess to the salespeople, particularly in your industry, dealing with large revenue, large orders and, and big revenue, the salespeople could be like, oh, I just made a $400,000 sale. I should uh, get, get at it. least 40, 40 grand. It. But you might say, well, wait a second. It's a 3% wait, it, margin. Yeah, it's a 3% margin. Relax <laughs> like, yourself. Yeah, yeah mate, yeah. It's, it's not paying for your salary, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not the revenue. It's, it. it's the margin. So that it, yeah. it's quite interesting that you – you, uh, I, I can understand how you would get to the point mm. where that would be the approach to the sales team. It's yeah. like, hey, you need to know the margin, so you're yeah. you're not blown away by the revenue Absolutely. you're generating, but yeah. you should be blown away by the profit, or you should be focusing on the, on the margin. Yeah. Sorry, not the yeah. profit. And and look, I I run my all my P and Ls accordingly. So me and my CFO meet regularly on how the business is performing, and I don't want to see in. I don't want to see a P&L with EBITDA in it month to month. I want to see exactly what's in going in the, in the bank effectively. So I expense depreciation every month. I have a tax provision on our P&L to show me exactly how the business is performing to try to align that with, you know, cash flow and and. and and money at hand. So you trying you, control. You, you really focus very much on the cash in and out and the amount you got in the bank. Yeah, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. that's what I do. I love seeing that. It makes mm. me feel more comfortable. I actually have a report. Um, uh, I won't go into how Cubs PNLs work, but I have a report uh, every single day that I get that tells me how much money came in, how much money went out, and how much money is in each bank account for each business. Sure. So it's a, basically a cash flow report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yep. it's, there's something comforting about knowing the actual movement definitely. of cash in your business. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and someone said to me, uh, well, my old man used to give me shit, and, and he still does because I'm, I'm not amazing at it, and I was going to ask you how you, got good, how you got experience with P&Ls and the financial reporting because I certainly still am not uh, where I'd like to be. Mm. But – but um, he was giving me shit about it. He was like, it's like playing – if you don't know how tax and the, the financial the financial reports and, and all this stuff works, it's like playing uh, a game of soccer without actually knowing the rules. You can't win. You can't play. And and so I thought about it. I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay, maybe I don't yet know uh, the in-depths um, – of how the tax and, and, and the financial reporting and the banking systems mm. and all this is working. Mm. I mean, I'm a lot more advanced now than when, when this yeah. conversation happened. But but I thought, okay, well, what's the simplest concept that I can understand and create <laughs> that that would would have me making sure the business was doing was was going up and, and the and, and the simplest thing I came in was the aim of the game is have more money come in. Then goes out. Then goes out. So I was Pretty like, simple. "That's what I'm going to look at every day. Yeah, how much came in? How much went out? And definitely. if most days more's coming in, then I'm happy." Yeah, you're in the in the black mate. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I think for me as well, in in the nature of my business in manufacturing, costing can be really complex. And I don't want to I don't bore you with it, but 
you know, a lot of moving parts, you know, consisting of labour and overhead. The overhead portion of how I cost is very complex. So, you know, it's not as simple as me saying I'm buying something for a dollar and selling it for a dollar fifty. Um, what consists of that one dollar? Well, it's raw material, it's labour, it's electricity, it's water. I mean, it goes on. It's machine finance. I mean, it's really complex. Everything. And yeah. so, and go back to the point is when I was really struggling, I was flying blind. I really didn't know. And being truthful here, I really didn't have control of my costs and understand, um, you know, what was, I guess, a viable transaction with what I was doing. You know what helped me with 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 costs and it really changed cab was when COVID happened. It was the first time, well, probably both of us had ever experienced steering the ship through an incredibly difficult financial time mm. uh, or, or let's say just a bad economy, I mm. should say. And when the bad economy came and you know you're not sure if the world's closing i started looking at everything i was like oh my god how much am i spending on my car like how much do i have this and uh, like, you start looking at everything you're yeah. like okay nap 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 you start crossing everything out you're like nap don't yeah. need that and then all of a sudden your business starts doing better than it was before covid because you cut out all the know, shit and you're like right? yeah. yes like, yeah imagine if you had that in the good times that but it's hard mentality to, right but it's hard to do because like then the good times come all the revenue starts coming and all of a sudden you loosen up yeah but buy that let's get that yeah, and it's it's really you've got to be quite frugal to yeah 100% you know dedicated to being frugal i guess yeah. if that's yeah. the right word to 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 manage i think that. um an interesting i guess strategic change in what we've been doing with my business is you talk about cost management as an example so you know the 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 four major subsidiary businesses under holloway group now have well quite recently been allocated a general manager of those business units and so they have full PL accountability so as an example we're in the process of replacing our national marketing manager right well it's a real easy decision for me to say yeah yeah i can go and pay that marketing manager x and we need it and let's go ahead and let's hire but when you engage those business unit managers that have PL accountability they get buy-in around well, actually, my business unit is going to have to recover that cost. We're going to be expensing that cost in my business unit. How bad do you want it, business unit owner? And so it was an interesting, I guess. Well, that's an interesting yeah, dynamic. it's a different way of, I guess, getting the team's buy-in. So I'm a big advocate now of, like, Dan, if you're in my business and I'm employing you, there is no way in the world that you're going to treat my business like it's your own. But maybe you would if you had skin in the game. Mm. You know, I'm not talking about equity, but certainly PL accountability. Well, you can have and profit share. I mean, equity is always yeah, nothing wrong with it. Certainly anyway. a profit share, and, and that's worked really well for us. And that's what you've done with your subsidiary businesses Correct. that you've created. Yeah. Each of these subsidiary businesses is one of these patent product lines that you Effectively. that you're delivering. Yeah. And so that's how you've expanded. Well, I mean, it's very similar to Cub in that that's how we expand the clubhouses. That yeah. there is I actually provide equity. Right. Um and uh, that's they're, they're, they're responsible for the yeah. operation of that business. And for us to scale, for example, we've got Brisbane and Parramatta happening this year or in the next 12 months. Uh, and, and maybe are rallying even, uh, hard. It's we're awesome. rallying very yeah, hard yeah. at the moment. But to do that, it, uh, I couldn't do it. It's too hard. You've got to be there. You've got to travel. You've mm. got to motivate the team. Like, you can't, it's just it. impossible. They're not in the same office. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you need people. You need to provide equity. I think that's something that a lot of business owners should be open to. It's okay. When I scale yeah. – yeah. How do I scale? What's yes. the best system? It doesn't mean you have to, you know, um, yeah, we'll bring up my old man again, but he used to say owning 1% of something is more than 100% of nothing. Yep. Yeah, that's the extreme way of putting it. But 
but it's kind of like, yeah, okay, you might sacrifice some equity, but is your but are you making more? That's it. You know, are you making more than you could without that person? Well, I, I agree, and I guess the old analogy, especially with my business unit managers, like they're not gonna succeed, however you want to define that, by billing their their time out to me. I mean, I I, I want these guys to perform at a level that I perform at. It's, it's my organisation. I mean, I, you live or die by the sword. And so giving them some insight into that and providing them with opportunity, I, I use the term empowerment, like, you know, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, right? So we've been on this rampage of getting really good talent into our business and, it made it's, it's revolutionised the last – probably the last three or four years just with the talent that I have in the team now. Wow. I, I, mm. I, I, sorry, I, I, wanted, uh, I was going to start a topic and then you brought me to something that I wanted to, to talk more about. The other thing, uh, I, I want to get to the talent thing, but the other thing that I think is important to note for, for people is that when you are providing equity or, or – it doesn't have to be equity, right? If profit shares what works, profit shares better anyway. Mm. Um, but – but if you are providing people that sense of ownership over the company, mm. the other big weight you have off your shoulders is that person's not going anywhere and that business is fine. And that weight is almost worth the, 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 the you know, the potential. You can't even call it a loss of, um, of profit because that person is making the rest of the profit possible. But, but it's worth that cost mm. because you've got the security that, that it's stable. Yes. Because the biggest risk – is yeah, and that's what I I hated about um, Australian law is if I'm an employee, ah, you know what I got a new job, fuck it, I'm out, I stop tomorrow. You know, you might have a clause in your contract that they have to work a month, but you know they're going to be there poisoning everyone and doing the. Yeah, they're not really going to work. I might have Dances a sick day business, Friday. Mate. Yeah, it's yeah. this. You have to yeah. stop them immediately. Whereas a business can't decide that. You know, oh, yeah. if, if you're doing something horrible. And I haven't followed the correct process and blah blah blah. Yeah, I can't. I've got to still pay you for another, yeah. you know, three months. Do you three checks? And it's yeah. not a, it's not an even playing field. No. But when you have someone that has equity, or they're, they're an owner. Mm. That person is there. The most important person for that arm of your business yeah. is there, and that sense of relief and security is just such a nice feeling. Definitely, and and we struggled with staff attrition, and that was one of the leading causes of us kind of reshaping how. We employ especially people in the leadership team. Um, yeah, that was a game changer. Yeah, that was a game and, changer. And, and so how did you um, – you mentioned you wanted to up your – you wanted to up the level of, of uh, staff that you were bringing mm. on. Mm. You wanted A players. I, I, mm. It's probably the easiest way to mm. put it. How did you go about doing that and how was that a change within the company? Yeah, so um, – I, I, one of my recent business acquisitions was the com a company called Ausdrain. Um, I bought that business a couple of years ago and I probably bought it a little bit prematurely in the sense that I knew I wanted it. It was a good fit for the business, the existing business, but it really didn't – it was it was run by, a, you know, effectively a sole – it wasn't a sole trader. It was a proprietary limited company, but he, it was just him and a couple of, you know, guys on, the, on his sales floor effectively. And so, you know, when I bought that business, I then set out to – I actually – pinched the business unit manager that's running that now uh, from our competitors. So uh, that was through a recruiter, something that has conventionally been very, I guess, expensive for me. But again, you, you pay it extra to a recruiter, you pay that particular person a little bit more in salary, give them some buy-in, their business unit, and you get back that tenfold in their performance. Like it's a no-brainer. It took me a few years to get my head around it, but 
when that success starts to come through the business because of the particular person that you've appointed, it's it's a game changer. And it is a bit of a delayed res- success response as well because Definitely. even a, a great person is never going to come in and just sh- r- ch- change the direction of the ship immediately. Mm. Um, actually, a member named uh, Adrian Hondros who also has a, a podcast episode which is fantastic. Actually, I think he has two. He's the only person that's ever done two episodes but but they're both excellent. He's, he's, he's an expert leader. He was the head of Combank's private bank. He's, right. He was the head of uh, Porter Davis, which is the second largest home builder in Victoria. Really, really, really advanced guy. He said to me, I actually asked him, when you come in, go into a new organisation, um, how do you – and he, he does long tenures at, at organisations. Well, when you go in, how do you kind of take control? And he said the best way to think about it, the best way to do it is to think about it like, and I know you're a surfer, is to think about it like surfing. You know, when, when you're coming to an organisation, it's like a wave. You have to catch the wave and then once you're on the wave, you, the wave's pulling, pu- pushing you forwards, then you can, you can start, uh, you know, kind of directing the wave bit or at momentum. least a bit of momentum. You yeah. can push to the left, you can yeah. push to the right. And, and that's, how, that's, how, that's how you'd want to see someone. And so with that in mind, when you hire a great person – the effect of them being great isn't going to happen for six to 12 months and that would still be pretty good. Yeah, obviously there'll be some easy wins but in any great effect, it's going to take its time. Would you agree with that or did you experience something different? No, 100% would agree with it. Yeah, you know, it's about integration into the existing business and and they're… Not destroying the culture of the existing stuff. Yeah, but certainly again they're maybe reinventing the culture especially if they're heading up that business. But um, that, that takes time. Strategy takes time to not only, uh, you know, produce but also implement as well. So, yeah, look, um, we're just hitting our straps with that business now and that's that was 24 months ago. Mm. So, yeah, there you go. You know the thing, uh, other thing with recruiters is that um, if you're recruiting a fair bit throughout the year, you may as well just hire a head of people and culture. Because, I mean, mm. we haven't done this, but I was thinking about it this year because the amount of t- star- team members we're bringing on mm. and the amount the recruiter takes per team member, mm. you would easily be able to afford your own uh, – well, we would be able to, yeah. to hire a good, a high-quality, experienced uh, head of people and culture who is like HR person. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's also something to think about. If you think, okay, I'm going to be recruiting – you know, seven to ten people mm. this year, and mm. this is what the this I'm paying the recruiter twelve percent or fifteen mm. percent, and the person's wages are averaging at hundred grand. Mm. Then you know, I can. Why don't I just bring someone in full time to to, I, to actually I, focus? Like, on that? yes, I think the only thing with recruiters is they've got access to talent that you're not going to get just on seek. That's the only other. That's thing. true. You know, like. Yeah. Um, and they're known the people the talent comes to them. That's it, right? Mm. And so that's what their forte is, but. Certainly, very yeah, true. I didn't think yeah, about that. You've got a point in the sense that it is costly, like it's it's bloody costly. But if you find a good recruiter that has access to the specific skill set you're chasing, I, I think it's a game changer. Yeah, because mate, I you know five six years ago, I know too expensive. I'll literally get on seek myself and find this role that yeah, chalk and cheese, mate. Compared it's to very what, different. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, which is an interesting. And so the business is currently one. you've got four or five subsidiary companies. Yeah, there's, there's five. Yep. Five, including the one you just you purchased, yep. I guess. Yeah. And it's a global business in that you're providing these. Yep. Um, you're providing your um, products globally yep. to organisations everywhere. And um, do you want to talk? Just actually give some examples of what some of the products are, because I mean, mm. I've heard you talk about them at 
lunches and all sorts of things. You know, what, the fuck like, what the fuck is that? Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe because I, I would be curious. And we're not far apart in age. You know, it's just interesting how how someone gets into a business that does something like I call it very random. It's obviously not because it's extremely necessary. But like I met a member. Well, I didn't meet a member. It's one of our long term members in Melbourne, um, uh, named uh, Arnand, and um, and he has a business that builds water tanks and I went to his factory and I was like oh this is amazing like this is what a factory looks like and there's these big water tanks and yep. and I just thought well, that's a random business for you and he was relatively young as well he's yeah, probably okay. same age as you yeah, right. and and I was just like that's such a random business so I'd just be curious how you got to the point where that those were the products you were making and specializing in. yeah it's a, it's a good question I mean I've got such an interest in I guess other people and what's going on in other businesses and other industries outside of, you know, what I was doing 15 years ago, I, I, I must point out the Holloway Group has a, a very strong value prop in end-to-end product commercialization. So that's certainly, if I was trying to explain the organisation to you, the Holloway Group now has been rebranded. It, it's an end-to-end um, innovation facilitator, we say, which is a bit bit of a fancy word for saying, look, we're, we're the company that you, you go to if you've got – an idea that you want to take from design, we can handle it for you. So CAD, FEA testing, we can then prototype the product for you. We handle the tooling and then obviously the mass production and we've got um, options around how we do that. So that's a that's a big advantage of, of part of our service, I think. So you do both. You create your own products and sell Correct. them, but you also help other people realise the products. Exactly. And ideas so that, that, that little spiel on that service, Valprop, well, we just implement that to our own proprietary lines, right? And that's where the success has been derived from. So, yeah, look, the, the subsidiary brands are very, very diverse. So the AP Plastics brand now is, um, you know, we specialise in the manufacture and design of industrial grade supply chain and storage solutions so plus that mean like crates yeah. buckets bins um things you'd see in warehouses yeah a, a lot for companies like amazon um woolworths metcash so not so much retail facing products but products that form up a part of a solution for their you know automated picking solution so we did uh, 30,000 tote bins for the metcash automated picking facility in that business so you got plastic crates buckets you know, logistics type of applications. Um, I've got Geohex, which is a, a really cool, innovative ground stabilization technology. So, um, you know, that's a, a cheaper alternative to concrete or asphalt. Explain that one. That was yep. the one you were telling me one time at lunch at the Ivy. Yeah. And I was. You should have just said, I still don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I did. Well, obviously, I did. And I'm, all I know is how yeah. to introduce people. But. Yeah. But yeah, what, so yeah. explain how that works. Yeah, so explain what it is. Yeah, so it's a it's effectively a permeable plastic paver. Um, you know, they've been. You're gonna have to do a better. Yeah, better I'm, I'm getting there. So <laughs> me and Laura look at each other like, what? Think about domestic landscaping, and you may have seen a small plastic grid with pebbles inside of it, just to retain the pebbles around the, the garden. Mm-hmm. Well. I guess a less complex way of explaining is we've basically turned that into a commercial application. So our product goes into the mining space, civil and commercial applications as well. We've turned it into a really high payload um, and, and it's got really good payload applications. So you What can, does that mean? It doesn't fall over? Uh, no, it means it can take a lot of weight. The best way to describe the most applications that we see from Geohex and the distribution base that we've set up would be a farmer with 
um, a cattle race that moves his cattle from A to B and it's got some slope about it and every time it buckets down with rain, it turns into mud and sludge. His cattle often go lame because they're stuck. There's issues with that transition bay that happens all the time. So you would contract one of our installers to come in, cut that problem area out. Our product's 50 mil high by a metre by 500. It gets laid in that cutout area like jigsaw. An aggregate is then compacted over the top of it. And so the geohex reinforces the subgrade. And it's also permeable. So it allows water to sift through into the sub layer. So you're left with, when it rains, a hardened, compacted, uh, permeable application. Uh, you know, you should have made the walls taller. You would have made a fortune, gave Trump a call, been like, mate, I can probably help you out with your, with your wall. I'm Mexican, I'm not pro-walls, but fuck. That's you, a tall well, bit of jerks, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so look, that that business, we've innovated that. That's our own IP. It's going really nicely. Um, and, and how did you, like, who came up with that? Who said, was it you? Like, for example, at Cabo, you yeah, different people come up with different ideas. Were you like, hey, that's a great idea, let's do that, or did someone else think of that? Not having tickets on myself for that one, but that was certainly that was certainly me pushing. That was one of yours. Yeah, pushing the, the innovation side of that. There was a real opportunity there where, um, you know, the, the equine industry had no solution. There was effectively, you know, there was effectively um, no – I, I, no solution to that before mentioned problem that I mentioned. So we worked with different stakeholders along the product development side of that, which was which was really in, you know, a, a really cool cool process. And how have you navigated or learned how to deal with international organisations and sending things overseas? Are there yep. ever issues with law? Spent a lot of money pay, with KPMG. <laughs> yeah, is that what? You're yeah, okay. we've we've got a big licensee for that product down at uh, down in South Africa at the moment that's rolling out, which is good. Um, Malaysia. Um, I mean, there's different ways you can service. So now board. you're licensing the yeah. products. Yeah, yeah, well. that one in particular. Oh, there you go. That's yeah. how you make it. Yeah. Ca- that's yeah. how you make some cash. Yeah, is that going to be the future of the business? You uh, think? A part of it, certainly. Um, there's another really exciting business unit that we've just we've just launched, which is a, a brand called Biax. Um, Biax is a replacement void former in the building and constructions f- uh, space for the residential building market, effectively. So when you lay a house slab, you form up the you know, the, the slab, yep. you've got your form boards and then you'll see if you ever drive past a building site ready for a concrete pour, there's big big white polystyrene foam waffle pods sitting in there acting as a void former to reduce the volume of concrete poured. It also acts as a, a strengthening mechanism to the slab itself. But foam's been around for, you know, four decades. It's it's horrible. It gets into waterways. It blows away on site before it's um, been laid. I've got seen video and photos of foam rolling down new estates. It's horrible. So uh, what we did with Biax is set out to commercialise a replacement to the foam void former made out of 100% uh, recycled post-industrial plastic waste, which is really cool. So, um, you know, foam, you get seven foam waffle pods on a pallet. Our product, you can get 56 units. So it's got a lot of freight efficiencies. So much easier on concreter and build, uh, concreters and builders signed up a couple of big builders over the last um, 12 months and, yeah, we're in the process of, of scaling that now, which and is so really, really exciting. innovating industries in a sense. Yeah. I think making real-world impactful um, advances in, in different markets is – and that's what I love about what we do hmm. at Holloway Group. It's, yeah, yeah it's that's good. really exciting. Yeah. And I would like I, I, yeah. I know nothing about any of it, but yeah. I, that would be fun. It's like yeah. I can understand the the appeal in, in – 
pushing an industry or a way of doing something forwards. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's like bringing out the the iPhone 15. That's it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's, it's, yeah. This yeah. is the next way we're going to be doing this. Absolutely. This is going to be the next standard. It's 100%. better. 100%. Yeah. And, and you've probably heard there's a lot of conjecture about the plastics industry and what's going on from an environmental perspective. I mean, you know, our business does on average now, we process 300,000 kilos of recycled resin every month. So that's 300 ton through Holloway Group now. So a lot of those before mentioned brands and subsidiaries, all the products that they sell are out of sustainable recycled polypropylene. Okay, well, so obviously that's a big uh, cloud over the industry where people uh, might um, um, talk shit. <laughs> what, a, what a naive I was trying topic. to think of the word. Yeah. <laughs> no, talk no, shit. For sure. but, but I know you, you love nature and stuff as well. So you take the environment very seriously and, 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 yeah. and run the business in a manner that's, that's extremely Definitely. conscious yeah. of the environment. Yeah, there's another subsidiary brand while we're on kind of that recycling space, which is Plasma, which is – which is really exciting. It's a small company at the moment. We've got some plans in place to scale that. And um, that's quite an interesting business. You know, the conventional recyclers, Dan, will say, right, that broken bread crate or that broken milk crate's made out of polypropylene. I want to take that feedstock and I want to grind them up and I'm going to resell that polypropylene in a processable format in granules that I can put through my moulding machines. And everyone wants recycled polypropylene. And so what happens with is, is all the other plastic shit waste, the soft plastics, the straws, they all get left behind. So everyone wants all this really high-value polypropylene as an example. Well, what the plasma business has and the actual the, – the, the recycling arm of that business is going to be called New Gen Recycling. So we actually haven't launched it, but we're building our own recycling facility out at Reevesby. And that recycling facility has the ability to not only take polypropylene but all the soft plastics as well. We put it all and together with some, something yeah, some intellectual property we've got called co-mingling. So we can take all that plastic shit, all the junk, mix it with a proprietary blend and we're putting that into um, fence posts. That's in, incredible. Yeah, in the rural sector that speaks a lot to the Geohex customer base. That's incredible. You're yeah, having some fun with that at the moment. It's really yeah, cool. Yeah, you're a really impressive guy. Uh, thank and, you, Dan. And Appreciate me, that. My head will explode after this. No, no, I'm sure I'm sure the listeners think the same thing. But, <laughs> but and tell me, what's the future or what's the vision now for the Holloway Group, is it to, to – what was your son's name? Uh, Riggs. Is it to keep it there for Riggs or is it to sell and, and it's, uh, what's it's, the it's plan? It's a good question, mate. I, I, I think probably business owners don't often reflect on on what a succession plan looks like, you know, with – I don't know if you do with Cub, but we're, we're both quite young. I think you just get so consumed in the – in the process and the motivation, the bouncing out of bed, the the struggles, like Problems the grind, mate. I, you know, I I think that for those for Holloway Group and its and its business units, we want to be market leaders. And I'm not really sure how you define that. Sometimes, whether it's the biggest and the baddest, or it's um, again having maybe. I think for me, I'm dribbling here, but answering the question is probably. Uh, I think I'm motivated by having those impactful changes on the world like we've got a business and a skill set that can really deliver market disrupting technology and man we're having a blast at the moment it's it's yeah. good fun no i'm so happy to hear it and i think you've been a member now for four years or something like not that, quite so. a day one but close yeah, to yeah close to yeah so uh, i i've you know I've, I've i've heard you talk many times about the different stages of of a business's journey and and i mean 
it, I, me and Cub are a great example. There's ups and there's downs and there's mm. points of like now where there's great momentum and everything's happening. There's in, in, in the future with uh, I'm sure Holloway Group and any company, Cub especially, it, you know, there's it, you could be doing great now and then there's going to be a, a down. And, you, you know, it doesn't mean the company's down. It just means that something's wrong and it's a problem. You've got to fix it. That's and, it. And I just think business owners being aware that hey, there's ups and downs. It's part of this. It's part of how it works. The downs are there to make sure that you get better, so you can cause the next up. That's how I look at it. For sure, I think diversification's got a, a really good way of mitigating that as well. So you spread yourself across industries, right? You're going to see a downturn in one port. Look at hospitality recently. I mean, we the A plus plastics business that sold products into reward hospitality and bundle. May we tanked. You know, the building construction space got a lot of surplus and a lot of um, stimulation to it. And so we've actually done quite well through that period. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, COVID taught me that. I had never thought about it. Yeah. But then uh, Melbourne was shut and Sydney was was uh, open and firing. And then yeah, I no. thought, imagine if we had Brisbane and Perth. You'd, be, you'd be sweet. Yeah, you'd, yeah. You'd, if one was shut, the rest are going 100%. anyway. So, yeah. so it, being spread, mm. taking that risk to grow and expand – and um, and diversify in terms of like what you were saying, client based industry. Mm. Take because it is a risk because it's more work and it's more definitely. Uh, it, it's more hard. To, it's hard to grow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to grow. It, it's worth it because you become more defensible. In, in fact, um, uh, there's a, a big stat that uh, I, can't, I don't want to make it up actually, but there's a big stat that if your business had the more staff a business has. The more, the higher the chance of long-term survival of the business. Now, there's a lot of things that would go into that stat, mm. but if you looked at nothing else but the number of staff, the more staff a business has, the bigger its chance of of success is. So, really, the more you grow, that's <laughs> the, it. The more robust yeah, you become. I, I realize. Sure. I realize that's a yeah. you're looking at one element in the in the. But stats again, there, I guess still challenging that though. You can have a big business, and I go back to the start of our convo, and you're not transacting margin. You're really on a on a kind of a, a cliff's edge there. Yeah. Well, so if you don't innovate, that's it, which is what you did. Yeah. And I think that's a, a mm. good place to mm. to round up the episode. Is <laughs> make sure you innovate. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, mate. No, mate. Thank you, and yeah. thank you for everything you've for your involvement in the community, Cab. And yeah. thank you for today. Appreciate it. You're bro. you're you're an incredible person. I'm 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 certain the listeners are going to be like, who gets into that? Because, oh, you know, no. there's, there's yeah. common businesses and then there's uncommon ones. And yeah, we're you're, definitely you're in, uncommon. <laughs> yeah, you're uncommon. <laughs> but that's what's beautiful. Thanks, um, To the listeners, um, if you want to uh, get in contact or find out more favourite books, biggest lessons um, from, from Matt, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you will find it all there. If you want to catch up with Cub on social media, it's at Club of United Business on Instagram. Thank you again, Matt. Cheers, brother. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed the show.